Now, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in southern Ohio. Okay, anybody ever been to Ohio? Kind of flat, isn't it? Cornfields. Yeah, kind of back. I lived in the country, um, but I didn't have the accent until I moved down here. No offense. Um, but we lived on the eastern edge of what is known as Tornado Alley. Anybody ever heard of that Tornado Alley? So what do you think happens in Tornado Alley? Every summer, every spring. No, no hurricanes, no earthquakes. Tornadoes. Now, we, we lived an hour's drive of Cincinnati, so there were many evenings that we spent paying close attention to the developing storm cells coming up from northern Kentucky. And that was all well and good when we had a basement, right? I mean, there's some comfort there. You go in the basement, you hide from the storm, wait till it passes. Well, when we moved to Wilmington, Ohio, we lived for seven years without a basement. So when we got those tornado watches that inevitably turned into tornado warnings, you know where we went? Ground floor of the laundry room. I don't know why. And we took with us a very large mattress. So there were many nights I remember us weathering the storm underneath the mattress, hoping that we were going to be okay. Well, eventually, I mean, we were. And eventually we got kind of bold because we were accustomed to tornadoes. I can remember sitting on a lawn chair in the driveway, just kind of watching to see if something was going to materialize. Um, but so we spent many evenings kind of nervous, nervously, you know, wondering what's going to happen. Is the tornado going to come close? Because my mom actually lived through the Great Xenia tornado, and it took off her back porch. So tornadoes have the ability to make us feel small, don't they? You ever been through one? You ever been through an event that made you feel small? I mean, we've all been in situations, right, where we felt overwhelmed. You ever met a prominent person, somebody famous? Did you respond how you had hoped? Did you kind of trip over your words? Or did you say something you've heard other people say? I've done that. Have you ever been to a very large crowd event? You know, what's the biggest crowd event you've ever been to? Somebody. How big? Okay, are we talking 20,000, 30,000, 50,000? Have you ever been to a Braves game? I mean, do you feel, do you feel large and in charge at a Braves game? No, you're just a number. You're, just a, you're literally a number on a seat. There's so many people. Or maybe you, like me, you've come face to face with the forces of nature, right? You ever been to the ocean? How do you feel when you look out across that vast expanse? Or you're on a mountaintop. How do you feel? Or you see an approaching storm. Or maybe you've seen on the news, what about hurricanes and the devastation, earthquakes, tsunamis? How do, they make, how do these experiences make you feel when you realize you're at the mercy of forces beyond your control? You ever felt like that? You're at the mercy of forces beyond your control. Was there a part of you that felt a bit vulnerable? Yeah? A bit powerless, a bit helpless? Absolutely. Today we're going to see a story where God revealed himself as holy to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And it evoked some of these same feelings in his audience. They felt vulnerable, they felt powerless, and they felt helpless. And you know, when you and I first begin to understand who God is, remember that? God is holy. He's perfect. He's just. We start to feel a little bit concerned, don't we? A little bit vulnerable. Maybe a little bit powerless, helpless. We consider God in all his majesty and holiness. And as we'll see, it can lead to one of two responses. When you, are, when you realize who God is and who you are, that he's big and you're small, then there's two responses. One is apprehension and avoidance. And maybe some of you have struggled with that in your life. When you think about who God is, it's like, I'm a little bit nervous when I think about who God is. I kind of want to keep my distance. 
But the second response is childlike dependence. When you're in the presence of something bigger, you just submit yourself. You lower yourself. You humble yourself. Like a dog and a huge dog. Have <laughs> you ever seen a big dog and a little dog? And the little dog yips a little bit, but eventually it submits. That's an interesting analogy. Not really what I was going for, but thanks. So this is what God intended for Adam and Eve. Right? Childlike dependence. God was big. He was powerful. He was all-powerful. And he wanted them to trust him. Simple dependence. He wanted to have an intimate relationship with him as a result of his bigness. And you know, the first response is understandable, apprehension, avoidance. But today I'm going to make a case for the second response. When you begin, when you understand God's holiness like it's revealed in this story, and you begin to feel small, I would encourage you to lean into that feeling. Because that's what we don't want to do. We feel small. We want to. We want to keep it. Keep our distance, don't we? When we feel vulnerable, we want to keep our distance. We want to protect ourselves. We want to cover up. And I'm going to encourage you to do the opposite. Something that's not intuitive, and lean into that feeling, and lean into a relationship with Almighty God. Our story today takes place in the desert of Sinai. It's been three months since their dramatic exit from Egypt. The Israelites are camped in front of Mount Sinai, also called Mount Oreb. And the first point today is that God makes an incredible offer. God makes an incredible offer. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 3. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So God has made it clear who he is. He's revealed himself in a powerful way. He said, there's no doubt that I'm God and that I'm in charge. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is already mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. In other words, you'll speak for God. You'll represent me to other people. And a holy set-apart nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God is reminding them of his credentials. I mean, he has defeated the superpower of the time, Egypt, decisively. He's defeated them. There's no longer any doubt what God is capable of. And at this point, I, I think they're expecting to hear God's demands. Because at that time, the gods were accustomed to always be looking for something, right? So Egypt's gods, all the surrounding nations, the gods wanted something from the people. And so Israel's wondering, okay, what is God after? I mean, when it came to relating to the gods, they knew the drill. Do whatever it takes to appease the gods so they don't smoke you, smite you. You still say that? And do whatever it takes to manipulate the gods. So it was about appeasement, making sure the gods aren't angry at me, making sure the gods aren't going to smite me. But it was also about manipulation. In other words, I want to know what the gods want so that I can get what I so that was their motivation. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were expecting from the God of Israel. But instead, God doesn't ask something from them. He makes them an offer. There's a covenant agreement involved, but God's not focused on extracting anything from the Israelites. He doesn't need anything from them. But he's making them an offer. He talks about what he wants to do for them. Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Can you imagine a God talking to his, to his people like that? that day and time. A kingdom of priests. You will introduce others to me. I'll give you responsibility. You'll have an identity. You'll have responsibility. And you'll be set apart and distinct from other nations. So God makes an incredible offer. 
second point today is that Israel tentatively accepts the offer. And I'll explain that in a moment. Verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now it's possible at this point that this is a response of faith. They're saying, okay, we believe, you know, we've seen enough evidence to believe that God is who he says he is, but it's equally possible, I think more likely, this is a response of fear. Sure, sure, you know, whatever the pillar of fire and cloud that can, that can part the Red Sea and drown whole armies says, we'll do that, right? They might just be shell-shocked and in, in, in fear, and whatever God says, they're going to do it because this God has shown himself to be all-powerful and, and to be capable of anything that he decides to do. And if they're not afraid yet, they're about to be. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. So this is a way that God has not come before. He's going to come in a dense cloud so that the people will hear him speaking. They're going to hear his voice with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So God is about to show up in a very powerful way. We're going to see the description here. And it's going to be imposing. It's going to be scary. It's going to be intimidating. So number three, the problem with what God's about to do, and it's necessary, it's necessary, but the problem with what God's about to do is that God's course of action can be misunderstood. It can be misunderstood. God is about to reveal himself in such a way that will leave no doubt about the seriousness of the covenant relationship they're entering into. But the problem is that this kind of display of power can be misunderstood. God's powering up. God wants to intimidate us. The truth is God wanted to inspire them. He wanted to inspire their obedience. He wanted to inspire their allegiance, but it could be misunderstood that God's trying to intimidate them into submission. Now, I'll pick this out for Bruce, but shock and awe. Anybody know what shock and awe is? It's actually a military doctrine. Okay? It's based on the use of overwhelming power and spectacular displays of force to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and destroy their will to fight. Shock and awe, right? And this could be misunderstood. They, the Israelites might think that God is employing a tactic to scare them. And as we'll see in a moment, many crowd members responded as if God's intent was to compel them to cower. And I think they've misunderstood. But it's understandable, right? I mean, with what God's about to do, and you'll see in just a moment, the truth is much deeper when it comes to God, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God's holiness, anybody know what that is? His purity, his separateness, his otherness has always demanded perfection. I'm going to use an illustration here. Sandy LaRue used to work at CDC. Now, there are certain pathogens that are in level four, right? Security. Yeah, the most harmful, the most contagious, the most lethal. So if you're going to go into a laboratory in the presence of something with the potential to be lethal, are you going to take precautions? What kind of precautions are you going to take, Sandy? Well covered up. Well covered up. Anybody seen Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman, one of my favorites? And Kevin Spacey has a little rip in his suit, and he forgets to tape it up, and he gets infected. Okay, so if you're in the presence of something that has the potential, I mean, they're not, they're not evil, they're just pathogens, but they have the potential to be lethal. You're going to take certain 
precautions. And I believe that's what God is up to here, as we're going to see in just a moment. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they could no longer survive in the pure presence of God and have the potential to be lethal. And so God has to arrange things so they can be in their community with him. So now later on, when God sets up the tabernacle and the temple, there are very specific rules, specific ways in which man must conduct himself in order for God to be able to dwell among them. This is because imperfect people, which we all are, before Christ, before we're washed in his blood, they needed a system that involved blood sacrifice in order to be in the presence of a holy God. So when God set up this system and he said, you must do these things, it's like going into a laboratory with a potentially lethal pathogen. God said, you're going to be in my presence, but you have to follow the rules. You have to do it the right way so that you can be in my presence and be safe. So God's actually caring for them, but they misunderstand. In fact, before appearing, God requires them to do a few things in order to prepare for his arrival. God tells them to wash their clothes. God tells them to set limits around the mountain for their protection. He says, don't break through. Don't come closer than you're supposed to or it could be lethal. He's trying to protect them. And he says, abstain from marital relations. And so the fourth point is that it takes a whole lot. It takes a whole lot for us to be in the presence of a holy God. You're starting to get the picture. I mean, to be in the presence of God in the Old Testament, it takes a whole lot to be in his presence because he's holy. And now the stage is set for his appearing, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Can you imagine this? How scary this would be? Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered So can you imagine this scene? God makes a powerful impression, doesn't he? I mean, thunder and lightning, thick cloud, a loud trumpet blast, covered with smoke, the mountain trembling violently. And as we'll find out in the verses that follow, which we're not going to read today, but God's purpose in this display is to set apart Moses as the leader. And this is because, because God knows that the best way, the best way to protect Israel from themselves, from their own mistakes and their own tendencies, the best way to protect Israel is to lift up one man to be the leader. God knows that. So again, God's trying to protect them. He anoints Moses to be the leader. And after laying out the Ten Commandments, we're going to see in verse 18 of chapter 20 how Israel responds to this amazing revelation. This is, to me, the key point to so when the people, verse 18, saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. So how are they responding to God's presence? Fear, right? They're terrified. Wouldn't you be? I would be. I'm in the presence of something that, you know, there's different characters in the Bible. In fact, I'm thinking of Samson's parents. When they realized they'd been in the presence of an angel of the Lord, they said, we're done. We're, we're toast. We're not going to survive. Because we've seen the angel of the Lord. So they were afraid. And they stayed at a distance. See that? They trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. How are they responding? With apprehension. They're responding with avoidance. Listen to this. Speak to us yourself, Moses, and we will listen. 
but do not have God speak to us or we'll die. So the responding I described at the beginning of the message aren't I don't want to, if this is who God is, I'm going to keep my distance. I'm going to create as much space between me and God as possible to protect myself. Moses does his best to combat their misunderstanding, verse 20. He says, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. You're missing the point. Don't be afraid. That's not why God's doing this. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. So what's Moses saying? He's saying God's intention isn't to intimidate you. God's intention is to inspire you. It's to protect you. It's to move you to do the right thing so that you'll be safe. So again, God's wanting to do something for them, not take something from them. In chapter 24, there's a little section where God makes an additional effort. He invites Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu are Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel to have a meal in his presence up on the mountain. So you see God going to great lengths to combat this fear, this misperception of who he is and what his agenda is. He invites them to have a meal in his presence, 73 people, and they survive. But sadly, Moses' suspicions, because Moses figured it out. He's like, they're afraid of God, and I know what's going to happen next. Moses' suspicions are confirmed when he ascends Mount Sinai to receive the stone tablets from God himself. How long does it take for them to go astray? Not very long, right? What happens? May remember? Golden calves. Right? So it doesn't take them long to go astray. In fact, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders are not enough to keep the people from rebelling. They become complicit in the scandal. So Moses understands, and this is why he fought so hard to combat their misunderstanding. He knows as well as you do. He knows as well as I do that rules without relationship. What's that lead to? Have you ever heard this? Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. You ever seen that in your home? Maybe you're one grown up. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. And Moses knows that if they lean away from God... If they avoid God, if they don't lean in and come close, then they're going to feel like God isn't for them. Then, in fact, God's a little bit of an adversary. And they've got to try to appease him and manipulate him. And eventually, it's going to lead to rebellion. So Moses understood that rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Now, what about you today? As we kind of wrap up, somebody would go notify the captives to return. When you consider God's holiness and justice, do you respond to God with apprehension and avoidance in your heart? You think about God, it's like, you know what? I'll talk to God at dinner time. <laughs> but I'm not going to spend too much time talking to him. I'm not going to spend too much time reading his word because I'm a little bit concerned with what his agenda is. Maybe God wants something from me. Maybe God wants to take from me. And you would make the same mistake that the Israelites did. Because God is powerful. God is big. God is a little bit intimidating, right? Because he's holy. But in order for us to have a, a relationship with him, he had to have pretty extreme rules. But the good news is that those rules have now been done away with. And I'll explain that in just a moment. 
You know, sadly, I've been in church services in modern times where it seems like they're advocating Christian life under the Old Covenant. You ever seen this? It's all about special places. It's all about rules. It's all about you better do this or else. And it's like they're advocating, you, you can be a Christian, but you have to still live under the Old Covenant. Lots of do's. Lots of don'ts. You better be at church every Sunday or else. <coughs> we're not sure about you. So it's like people are advocating living the Christian life under the Old Covenant. They depict God as a righteous judge who's out to get the sinner, right? Better watch out. God's going to get you, right? Not you. Watch out. God's going to get you. But the truth is that Jesus Christ has paid our sin debt once for all, and he's made it possible for us to call God our Father. That's very different from God my judge, right? And that's what sometimes gets promoted. God is the judge. He's going to judge you. He's going to get you. You better watch out. God's a little bit like Santa Claus. He's keeping a list of who's naughty and nice, right? Yeah, you like that? I did that one for you. So, Jesus has made it possible for us to call and, and the way that Israel misunderstood God, because he had to do this, he had to come in power, he had, he had to come in and impress them so that they would submit and protect themselves from themselves. But it's different now. Romans 8.15 says this, The spirit you received, that I received, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. You and I are adopted. We're in God's family. We're not at Mount Sinai anymore. We're in the temple. You know when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The curtain in the temple was torn in two. You know what that means? It means we have access to the God of the universe through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have to live in fear. God's not trying to intimidate you. He's not trying to intimidate me, but he does want to inspire us. And what's more inspiring than say, hey, you're adopted. You're not on your own. You're part of my family. You're one of my kids. So the bottom line today is that Jesus Christ satisfied God's holiness. He satisfied God's holiness. And it's a little bit scary if you try to be perfect. Anybody here perfect? You better get a no. Right? <laughs> Anybody here perfect? Jesus was. And he satisfied God's holiness so we could be you know, what if we stood in awe of the greatness of God? Like we stand in the awe of nature, huh? What, did, you ever been impressed by nature? And then we are standing in awe of God. It's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's not complete. I mean, we need to show appropriate respect, regard for God's authority and His justice. But what if we also stood in awe at the grace of God? What if we appreciated what Christ accomplished on the cross. Jesus said he came not to abolish but to fulfill the law. In other words, the law as it was is no longer necessary. And we can boldly enter God's presence with confidence and without fear. And I pray that this truth washes over you this week as you consider consider that a holy God, a God who if you go into his presence the wrong way in the Old Testament, it was potentially Lethal. I've told you this before. The high priest would go in once a year, and legend has it, or tradition says, that they would tie a rope to his ankle with a little bell. And while he was doing his service, if his bell stopped jingling, then they could still get him out without going in, if you know what I'm saying. 
still potentially lethal, but it's different now. God, a holy God, a perfect God, who you can't stand to be in his pure presence, has made a way. He's made a way. He's torn the curtain. He's opened the door. He's cleared the barriers for you and I to have a personal relationship with him. God, thank you so much that you have made a way. You were the only one that could do it. I mean, there's no way we could make the way ourselves. But you have made a way, Lord God, for us to have a personal relationship with you through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ.